Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 32,811 people from 159 countries and is supported by 460 organisations from all over the world. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts engaged in defending women's rights. This week, I'm really pleased to say that we have Pauline Makovicicu from France being a feminist photographer in a misogynistic society. She'll talk about that. Um, then we have Caitlin Roper from Australia, Women as Objects, Sex Dolls and Robots as a Form of Pornography, talking about her new book on that. Then we also have Rain McLeod from Canada, Government-Funded Defamation, How the Canadian Government is Silencing Feminists. And finally, we have Carol Bartle and Katrina Briggs from New Zealand, an update from New Zealand. So now we're going to see a pre-recorded video from Caitlin Roper. She's from Australia and she the title of her talk is Women as Object Sex Dolls. And she says, I explore sex dolls and robots as a form of pornography and an emerging form of technology used against women to facilitate men's abuse of women and turn women into pornography. Caitlin Roper is a writer, activist and campaigns manager at Collective Shout for a world free of sexploitation, a founding member of Dopt Nordic WA and co-founder of Feminist Academy of Technology and Ethics. Her book, Sex, Dolls, Robots and Women Hating, The Case for Resistance 2022, is available from Spinifex Press. So we're going to now hear from Caitlin. Hi everyone, my name is Caitlin Roper from Perth, Western Australia. I'm campaigns manager at Collective Shout for a World Free of Sexploitation, a grassroots campaigning movement challenging the objectification of women and sexualization of girls in media, advertising and popular culture. My first book, Sex Dolls, Robots and Woman Hating, The Case for Resistance, has just been published by Spinifex Press and this has been released just a few weeks ago. The book is a feminist response to the development of sex dolls and robots made in the likeness of women and girls. I expose the inherent misogyny of the industry and outline the many harms of these products to women and girls, like reinforcing their sexual objectification, encouraging male sexual entitlement and violence against women. I make the case for resistance that we need to strongly oppose the trade in replica women and girls for men's sexual use and share some of the feminist activism and campaigns against the trade in sex dolls and robots. Today, what I'd like to focus on is sex dolls and robots as a form of pornography and how these products are being used against women. Sex dolls and robots modeled on the bodies of women and girls produced for men's sexual use represent the literal objectification of women. They are objects things in the likeness of women, embodied representations of women manufactured for the express purpose of being sexually used. They function as pornified, compliant replica women and girls that are sexually available at all times. Advocates argue sex dolls and robots could be used as stand-ins for women, but a female-bodied sex doll or robot, an object, could only be interchangeable with a woman if women themselves are regarded as objects. The notion that a female-shaped piece of silicon with penetrable orifices could be a replacement for a woman is premised on misogyny, the belief that a woman is reducible to her sexual attributes, that she occupies less than human status and exists to be sexually penetrated. Doll owners relate to their dolls as though they are women. They do to their dolls what they want to do to women. In my book, I expose doll owners' violent use of their dolls. Some men performed acts of sexualized violence, BDSM, and torture on their dolls, 
which they document through pornographic videos and photos shared to online forums and websites dedicated to sex doll porn. These men tied up their dolls. They acted out detailed scenarios of sex slavery and predation on their dolls. Some men broke their dolls through rough use. Others said they used their dolls as practice for sexual relations with women. Last month, what appeared to be a dead body, dead body washed up on the shore of a Thailand beach turned out to be a discarded headless sex doll. In recent years, there have been a growing number of cases where abandoned sex dolls are initially mistaken for dead women and girls, to the point where it's becoming an issue for police. Prior to being dumped, some of these dolls appear to have been subjected to extreme violence, found decapitated, mutilated and ripped apart. In the book, I explore sex dolls and robots as a form of 3D, potentially interactive pornography. These products are made with a really pornographic aesthetic in mind and designed to mimic the surgically enhanced bodies of female porn performers. Some are actually made in the likeness of specific female porn performers and made from molds of their bodies. Sex doll manufacturer Real Doll partnered with porn production company Wicked to produce Wicked Real Dolls modeled on female performers. Sex dolls and robots also embody the messages, the ideology of porn, that women are objects for men's sexual use. They replicate the same power dynamics between men and women that are expressed in pornography, male dominance and female subordination. In porn, as Andrea Dworkin describes, men are human and women are objects, and now men are using literal objects in place of women. In her book, Pornography and Silence, Culture's Revenge Against Nature, Susan Griffin made some really insightful observations about this dynamic of woman as object. And she wrote, a being exists only in order to exist. For a woman or a man exists no particular material purpose, but a thing, an object, must have a reason for being, a function. And where the pornographic woman is concerned, that function is to please a man. She exists for his pleasure. Not only does a woman exist to serve and to please, but in the subordinate existence of hers, she has no rights whatsoever, for she does not belong to herself. Griffin too identified these dolls as a form of pornography. She referred to them as pornographic dolls and argued they were the pornographic object's most quintessential form. She described these pornographic dolls as an actual plastic copy of a woman made to replace a woman and to give a man pleasure without the discomfort of female presence. She describes the appeal of these dolls to the pornographic mind. Her vagina opens on command. She is ready to go night after night. She does not talk back. She is perfectly controllable. I also discuss the growing trend in sex doll or sex robot themed porn. There are sites dedicated to porn featuring sex dolls or to men filming themselves using their dolls. The dolls are portrayed as though they are real women. On one website, each doll had its own performer page, which had its name, its photo, a little bio, and physical details like ethnicity and body measurements. The pornographic titles featuring sex dolls usually followed typical porn scripts. They were dominated by male aggression and the replica women portrayed as desiring and enjoying degradation and abuse. Men turned their dolls into porn stars, using their dolls to make pornographic content, which they then distribute on online forums. Men are imposing their sex dolls on women in both public and private, which I explore in the book, as a form of pornography and a sexist, insulting caricature of women, sex dolls and robots forced on women constitute sexual harassment. They communicate that women are reducible to their sexual attributes and functions, and that they exist for men's sexual use. When brought into public spaces, they create a hostile and unsafe environment for women and girls. And there are various examples of sex dolls being brought into the public space. Sex dolls have been used to fill seats at a South Korea football game, to fill seats 
uh, in restaurants during COVID. There are also sex doll experience cafes, doll brothels and rental services, and men who take out their dolls in public and do activities with them. These men are imposing their sexual fetish on women who feel powerless to object. In the third chapter of my book, Sex Dolls and Technological Terrorism, I quote Sheila Jeffries in a profound observation from her autobiography, Trigger Warning, My Lesbian Feminist Life. And she says, men will make use of whatever technology is available to engage in forms of terrorism against women. I situate female bodied sex dolls and robots within a context of technology that is being used against women, that is used to facilitate men's abuse and violation of women and to turn women into pornography. There's a growing trend, uh, this growing trend of image-based abuse, also known as revenge porn, where men distribute intimate or pornographic images of women without their consent. And this is often done with the intention to punish or shame the woman. We're seeing various social media spaces being used for these purposes. Facebook groups, WhatsApp chats, online forums and subreddits, where men trade pornographic images of women and girls, complete with identifying information at times, where they post photos of their girlfriends and invite other men to degrade them. Women can be made into pornography by men without their participation, without ever having taken or shared nude photos. Some women have learned of pornographic videos made and shared to porn sites by their male partners videos they didn't know existed, some even made when they were unconscious. Men can turn women into pornography through deepfake software that allows them to seamlessly superimpose the face of any given woman onto that of a performer in a porn video. So it appears to be a pornographic video of that woman. Deep node apps allow them to virtually undress a woman, turning images of fully clothed women into uh, nude images. Men turn women into pornography even as they're just going about their day-to-day -day lives. Through the use of hidden cameras, which are cheap and readily available, men can surreptitiously film women in toilets, showers, locker rooms, hotel rooms and their workplaces. And this is a popular porn genre. Entire websites and online forums are dedicated to upskirting or downblousing images photos revealing women's cleavage or where their nipples are visible through their clothing, wardrobe malfunctions or just generally out of context images where women didn't intend to reveal their private parts or for these moments to be captured or to be used for men's sexual gratification. There are also reported cases of breastfeeding voyeurism where men take photos of women when they breastfeed their babies in a public place like the park or on the train. These men transform the act of a mother feeding her baby into porn for their own enjoyment. I argue that sex dolls and robots are another emerging form of technology that can be used against women and girls. Through the production of sex dolls and robots, men can turn women into three-dimensional porn, and they have. Sex dolls can be made in the likeness of actual women, and there are several accounts of this in the book. Various companies are offering this service to make sex dolls customised in the likeness of specific women and even little girls based on a customer supplied photo. You can imagine just how devastating it must have been for these women who learned of sex dolls made in their likeness, even given their names. In an open expression of misogyny, some men claim to have commissioned dolls in the likeness of specific women. This was generally a tactic to silence a woman to put her in her place, to humiliate and degrade her and assert dominance over her. Doll advocates, including those who campaign to preserve men's access to child sex abuse dolls, claim that their use of sex dolls is harmless, that it's just a fantasy. Some call these dolls modeled on the bodies of little girls, toddlers and babies, fantasy sexual outlets. But men's sexual use of replica women and children is not merely a fantasy. As Andrea Dworkin explained, a fantasy is something that happens in your head. It doesn't go past your head. 
Once you have somebody acting out whatever that scenario might be in your head, it is an act in the world. It is real. When men seek out, buy and perform sex acts on a doll designed to look and feel like a real woman or child, they have moved beyond the realm of fantasy and into the realm of behaviour. These are real acts in the world. While the fantasy might be that the replica woman or girl they are penetrating is an actual woman or child, or that it desires them, the sex act or the violence is not a simulation, it is real. As I write in the book, men's fantasies for sexually using and abusing women and children acted out on lifelike dolls occur within a wider culture where such sexualized abuse is not a fantasy, but a reality for many women and girls. Men's fantasies are women's lived experiences. I cover a lot more ground in the book. I expose the academic supporters of sex robot technology and their commitment to upholding the male sex right. I discuss the parallels between the sex trade and the trade in sex dolls and robots. I devote a couple of chapters to child sex abuse dolls and also look at the ways in which women are groomed to tolerate men's sex doll use. In the midst of an epidemic of male violence against women, where men's violence remains one of the greatest threats to women's health, well-being, and their very lives, this reinforcement of the objectification and dehumanization of women only makes things worse. Female-bodied sex dolls and robots are an expression of woman-hating. Things are bad enough for women, we know this, we cannot afford for them to get worse. We need to expose, confront, and challenge male sexual entitlement. This belief that men have a right to sex and that they are entitled to women's bodies. We need to call out and fight the everyday sexual objectification of women, not legitimize and reinforce it through the development of sex dolls and robots. We need to resist. So we are now going to move on to Rain McLeod, who's from Canada. Um, Rain is a former English coordinator for WDI Canada, founder of Alberta Radical Feminists. And she's going to talk about uh, the title of her talk is Government Funded Defamation, How the Canadian Government is Silencing Feminists. So welcome, Rain, and over to you. A brief history. Um, in 2015, Justin Trudeau was elected the Prime Minister of Canada. He proclaims himself to be a feminist. And in 2015, he appointed a cabinet that was 50% female. So he was questioned about why he thought it was important to have, a, have that parity. <clears throat> and he said, it's 2015. Since his election, he and his party, as well as the other left-ish parties in Canada, have worked to improve the rights of LGBTQ2 plus IA, whatever, Canadians, starting with um, essentially the catastrophic Bill C-16 uh, that was passed and implemented in 2017. Um, that bill, if you're not familiar, uh, put gender and uh, gender identity and gender expression into the criminal code as protected characteristics. Uh, what this did uh, is basically guarantee that self-ID will be obeyed and uh, women can't do anything about it. This has resulted in men being uh, housed in women's prisons, violent sexual offenders, pedophiles, rapists uh, in women's prisons, and it has um, <clears throat> resulted in women being kicked out of rape shelters and halfway houses. It has resulted in the sexual assault of women in prison. It has involved, um, now there are men that can have free access to any room that they want with women in it, including change rooms. And any woman who speaks out about this um, is accused of bigotry or Nazism or what have you. So if you are interested in the men in women's prison issue, Heather Mason uh, did a talk with WDI, um, I think last year. She's um, a, an incredible women's prison advocate. And uh, so it was on April 3rd, she did a feminist question time. Uh, she also spoke with uh, Gislaine Gendron for WD Canada in Quebec. 
on March 6, 2022. Both of these videos are available on YouTube. Some of the other bills that the liberal government and the other leftish parties have put forward uh, are, so there was a, a hate crime bill that was proposed that allows individuals to report people for hate speech in advance of their having committed offense. The bill says, and I quote, a person may, with the attorney general's consent, lay an information before a provincial court judge if the person fears on reasonable grounds that another person will commit an offense motivated, motivated by bias, prejudice, or hate based on race, national or ethnic origin, language, color, religion, sex, age, mental or physical disability, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, or any other similar factor. So if a woman or a group of women are planning a feminist rally, it could be reported in advance of having it happen as hate crime, should this bill pass. Uh, there was a hate symbol bill that amends our criminal code to outlaw, quote, everyone who willfully or recklessly promotes or incites hatred or violence against any identifiable group by publicly displaying, selling, or offering for sale a symbol, emblem, flag, or uniform that identifies or associated with a person or organization that promotes or incites or has promoted or incited hatred or violence against an identifiable group. These bills are usually couched um, in racism and in terms of there being Nazis and KKK and Confederate flags, I think, are included. Yeah, these uh, the Confederate flags are included, but it also specifies that the groups that could be targeted on protected characteristics include gender identity or expression. So should someone decide that the suffrage flag is a symbol of hate, that could be outlawed and we could face time in prison. I mean, this is obviously, hopefully hyperbolic, but who really knows? There were people who spoke out against Bill C-16, including Hilla Kerner from Vancouver Rape Relief and Megan Murphy, uh, Gad Saad, spoke out about it. Uh, Jordan Peterson spoke out about it. They, their concern was that Bill C-16 was going to allow men into him spaces, and it has, uh, that it will be compelled, that Jordan Peterson's point was that it was going to compel speech, which it basically has. Um, it's just, it's exhausting. So the reason why I am speaking today in 2020, we, uh, my, I and some friends started away. It was started to support women who needed it. And we raised money for charity. We donated almost 100 handmade female-centered care packages that had food, hygiene kits, including soap and menstrual supplies and the like. Uh, we donated more than 60 pounds of clothing to a shelter for distribution to their clients. We participated in rallies supporting free expression as is protected under the Canadian Charter. And we protested men in women's prisons. In August of 2021, on August 19th, a government-funded nonprofit organization that was founded in 2018 published a piece that defamed me and other women who fight for those charter-protected sex-based rights of women and girls. This group is called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, or CON. According to their website, CON counters, monitors, and exposes hate, promoting movements, groups, and individuals in Canada using every reasonable, legal, and ethical tool at our disposal. What they really do is write piece after piece maligning Canadian feminists as TERFs, transphobes, racists, Islamophobes, for criticizing the restrictions placed on Muslim women by men. Uh, we are accused of being right-wing or far-right. We are accused of being members of hate groups. I personally have been referred to as um, deliberately cruel, hateful, and someone who mocks, bullies, and denigrates the existence of trans women, and someone who is working to ensure public spaces don't include transgender people. This is obviously false. They implied that I was a racist, that I was an ableist and a eugenicist uh, via proximity to the statues of the famous five during the protest in June, 
and accuse all of us of co-opting feminism. On their Twitter account, Khan frequently share and retweet things that whimsically disparage women as TERFs, which we all know is a gendered slur, and absurdly claim that feminists deny the existence of trans persons, so we do not. The reason why they are related to um, the Canadian government silencing feminists is that in 2020, Khan received $268,400 from the Canadian government's anti-racism action plan, action program. And that program is uh, stated to be in order to fund 85 anti-racism projects that aim to remove systemic barriers faced by racialized communities, religious minorities, and indigenous peoples. Khan also received a significant donation that was potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Bank of Montreal to support social and racial justice and inclusion. So instead of fighting racism, they used this donated and government provided money to go after individual women and our work to protect and uphold the charter-based sex protected, charter protected sex-based rights of women and girls, defaming us as hateful and anti-trans. Uh, Eva Kurilova recently wrote a piece about Khan basically exposing them, um, very detailed, it's great. It's on gender descent. It was published on September 6th. It is called How the Canadian Anti-Hate Network is Policing Thought Crime with Your Tax Dollars. So between August 18th and 24th of this year, the disclosure at the bottom of their webpage changed from our work is made possible in part to a grant from, or in part thanks to a grant from Anti-Racism Action Program to one that says that their grant period ended in March, 2022, and that they are not currently receiving any government funds. The theory is that this uh, was changed because they were receiving a lot of criticism for being a government funded group that was targeting feminists and just using all that money to go after people who are just speaking out about freedoms. So prior to their hit publication of the hit piece, Khan had emailed away requesting comment on what they had intended to report. Uh, their email asks for confirmation that I'm a part of a way that we explicitly state on the website that membership is reserved for biological and they put natal females, uh, that the book list on the away website includes content opposed to surrogacy, sex work and gender diversity, and a few other things and that we have collaborated with some, uh, some other nonprofits and charities in our city. So knowing how they had gone after other women's groups in Canada, in response, we sent a cease and desist letter that was signed by away, myself personally, Amy Ham, who you may know is currently going through a legal battle with the BC College of Nurses and Midwives um, for basically knowing that sex exists and matters. Uh, that those uh, hearings start next week, by the way, and I, uh, they should be, you should still be able to register uh, to attend them. Um, <clears throat> Women's Declaration International Canada signed it and Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights or COSBAR, who had been frequently targeted by Con, also signed the letter and We the Females. So that letter asserted that we stand only for the protection of women's rights and that we're not anti-trans or anti-LGBTQIA plus or anything else. Most of the other signatories had previously been defamed by both CTV, which is uh, one of the massive broadcasters in our country, and CON as anti-trans. Uh, WDI had previously issued a response and so did COSBAR to these pieces. In the anonymously written published piece, CON repeatedly lied, misquote, and they decontextualized both my work and the work of other women and other organizations in Canada. They use factual errors, in the piece, only two of them were begrudgingly corrected Corrected after publication, and one of the corrections is still wrong and contains a gendered slur. It also includes uh, deliberate disinformation to mar women's rights activism in Canada. It was impossible to address each falsehood line by line, so instead what I did was I produced an extensively marked up correction of the piece in its entirety. That response, the away response, um, can be read at bit.ly slash A-W-A-A response, all caps. So that, and that will take you to the Google Doc where I have um, recreated the, <clears throat> the uh, away response in full. And there are, uh, there's a link to the PDF of the corrected article. It is, there's just so many things that are lies. 
So obviously it goes without saying that I emphatically deny that I am in any way hateful or anti-trans. Um, neither is Dr. Linda Blade or Dr. Kathleen Lowry, both of whom were named in the piece, or any other woman or organization named in the malicious and defamatory article. It's very rich that they accuse me of racism, considering that the protest that they had a problem with was regarding the federal policy, Bill C-16, that allows male sex offenders, or male offenders, including rapists, murderers, contract killers, um, serial pedophiles who have been described as prolific, and sex offenders to use self-ID to transfer into women's prisons across the country. Uh, this this uh, policy disproportionately impacts Indigenous women in Canada. Uh, Indigenous women represent 4% of the overall Canadian female population. They represent 40% of the incarcerated female population in Canada. And in Alberta, it is 65%. So I'm being accused of racism and they are putting men into women's prisons, violent sex offenders into women's prisons and granting them access to a victim pool that is largely indigenous. And those indigenous women are also disproportionately uh, experiencing mental illness, addiction, and they're also disproportionately victims of physical and sexual violence. So it's obviously very troubling that Khan have taken to targeting individual women as well as groups in Canada for the supposed crime of standing up for women's rights. Any groups that accomplish such incredible community work are obviously not promoting hatred in any way. Khan's mandate ostensibly should protect women's rights organizations on the grounds that their members are working to uphold the rights and freedoms provided to women in the charter on the basis of our sex. And to face discrimination from a government funded organization is completely inappropriate. Uh, particularly if they're using funds earmarked to combat racism, a fight that women's groups support and participate in. Um, the current Canadian government is very invested in trans activism. Our progressive leader mugs at pride. Our Justice Department has changed their definition of woman to be all people who identify as women, be they cisgender or transgender women. It is worth noting that man did not have a similar definition in that, in that, on that page. It has since been added and it is essentially the same. It's also worth noting that um, indigenous is all people who identify as indigenous. At the International Women's Day Summit last year, where terms like she session and she covery were patronizingly used, uh, there were presentations that focused on the LGBTQIA plus 2S Canadians. Uh, there were also breakout chat rooms where questions could be asked of the presenters and attended, attendees could talk to each other. Women were kicked out of the summit for asking good faith questions about whether feminism was about sex or gender or for saying the word female. And I was personally told that the issues that people face based on their biological sex were hardly all that is important in feminism and that it's not about female, it's about women. So the day after some of us had been kicked out of the IWD summit, the organizers, read the government of Canada, sent an email to all of the people who signed up for the summit apologizing. That email said in part, unfortunately and unacceptably, some attendees made the choice to post disrespectful, transphobic and homophobic comments. We are appalled and disappointed by these posts and deeply regret that this incident occurred. So they don't, go into detail about the horribly offensive things that were said, mostly the word female. Um, but I've never had the government apologize on my behalf before. That was a weird email to get. Um, the One of the other bills that the Canadian government just pushed through um, is being euphemistically referred to as the conversion therapy bill. What this bill actually does is it guarantees affirmative only care for anybody who's uh, gender non-conforming. If a therapist wanted to do the watchful waiting approach, um, they would be guilty of conversion therapy and subject to a lot of fallout. Uh, that bill also enshrined the word and therefore the concept cisgender in Canadian law, relegating women officially into a subset of our own sex. So for less than a hundred years, we were actual people under the law. And now cisgender is part of 
the Canadian uh, criminal code. So these bills that are being pushed through and that are being proposed, regardless of them being couched in, uh, in racism, which is obviously horrifying, uh, they will, they're written so vaguely as to be applicable very widely. Um, they, the second that anything passes as far as hate crime, which hate is very subjective, it is almost impossible to legislate or regulate such a thing, um, women are going to be targeted. There was previously a bill that uh, would have allowed the CRTC to lift an exemption for user-generated content um, that essentially would have allowed um, women's posts to be removed from things like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter um, on the grounds that they did not meet the CRTC standards. So CRTC is the Canadian uh, Radio and Telecommunications Commission, I believe, um, and they are the boss of broadcasting in our country. And they would have basically included all posts that are user-generated if they've been seen or monetized. That bill is still, I think, in the works, um, but it has been amended significantly. So that is very good. Um, also, in 2018, the status of women uh, was, so that's the, that was the previous department in the Canadian government that was concerned with, obviously, women's rights. Um, was changed to Women and Gender Equality Canada. Um, so it's kind of like women's studies courses in university being changed to women and gender studies, which allows the focus to be turned to the women who matter, which are the men. So that is essentially how the Canadian government is working really hard to silence feminists in Canada. And um, we keep fighting and we will continue to fight. Uh, it just, many of us consider ourselves to be politically homeless because there isn't really a party that we can vote for that we won't be voting against our own interests. Um, it's impossible to find a politician who is relatively reasonable, uh, who can identify or define what a woman is. And we will just have to keep fighting and kicking and screaming as much as we need to. And um, the piece that Khan wrote about me was called um, the hill I am prepared to die on, the fight against trans women in Alberta. So despite this not being a fight about trans women in Alberta, I am absolutely willing to die on this hill. Um, protecting women's rights is fundamentally important, and it has to continue. We're now going to hear from Carol Bartle and Katrina Biggs. They're from New Zealand. And Carol Bartle has a health background, including midwifery. Her major work and interests include women's health, ethics and human rights, climate change and health, breastfeeding and infant feeding politics and women in prison, particularly mothers with babies in prison. Um, and Katrina Briggs, Biggs, um, I will give you the give you her bio at the end because I haven't got it written down here. They're going to give an update from New Zealand and also uh, talking about uh, issues with language changes and the issues related to the loss of sex-based language in maternity, birth, breastfeeding and women's health. Hi from Atria, New Zealand. I'm Carol Bartle. This is Katrina Beggs. And um, we've got a session for you talking about what's actually happening over here. Um, my background is in women, infants and children's health, and I originally trained as a nurse and a midwife in the UK. Since moving over to New Zealand, I've worked in a wide range of roles, but always with a focus on women's health and well-being. So this session is really in two parts. I'm going to do a sort of a short romp through what's been happening over here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And then Katrina is going to give you an update um, from Speak Up for Women New Zealand with an overview of some of the organisations and what's been happening here. I think that personally I've been sleepwalking a little for a few years because the first time I became aware of what was going on was in 2021 when the College of Midwives here, um, who had postponed a conference that had Millie Hill as a keynote speaker, um, started to receive some backlash when they were promoting the conference again. So. As you're probably already aware, because I know there's been a session um, or a couple of sessions before for WDI looking at this issue, um, the petition was started to remove Millie Hill as a keynote speaker, and it accused her of being a transphobic keynote speaker, which of course she is not. And it suggested that the conference would be unsafe 
if she was there, which is um, that she poses immediate risk and harm towards the LGBTQIA plus community. Then a counter petition was started, which addressed the defamatory statements against Millie and um, still quite still people signing both of them because both of them are still up there. When Millie first started writing and tweeting responses to the attacks in the UK, because of course she was being attacked over there quite vigorously, as well as in New Zealand, I sort of realised I needed to get up to speed a bit and do some reading. So I got up to speed quickly. My library, thanks to all this, rapidly expanded with books by Kathleen Stark and Helen Joyce, Julie Bendell, Jane Claire Jones, Holly Lawford Smith, and Abigail Schreer. I also reread 1984 because it seems pretty relevant at the moment. So what's been happening here? This is a very quick overview. So we have had the conversion therapy bill passed here. Um, it causes a lot of concern, of course, to counsellors and therapists in terms of what seem to be support for an unquestioning affirmation model, rather than counsellors and therapists being able to employ a more therapeutic approach in some situations. I think probably in the minds of people, the gay conversion therapy, which of course is appalling and a criminal assault, was mixed up in people's minds with what Stella O'Malley describes as gender exploratory therapy. So this had um, a lot of submissions and um, lots of uh, the select committee, lots of um, sort of uh, feedback on from both sides. And um, then after that, we had the birth, death, marriages and relationships registration bill. This comes into law next year, and then we'll see how the removal of sex in law and public policy plays out. Changing the protections afforded to women to apply to males who identify as women effectively removes these protections for women, of course. So we're all rather worried about where this is going to go. So the New Zealand media has been relatively quiet in terms of any critique of this or any in-depth exploration of these changes that have happened and what they mean for around 50% of the population. And recently there's been a full-on push to promote inclusive language in pregnancy as posing no issue for women. And this is a recent article from the New Zealand Herald, 4th of September, where it talked about um, how people using pregnancy in birthing spaces, words like mother are everywhere, this dysphoria is triggered by the unnecessary injection of femininity, etc. And femininity, femininity suggestive decor, for example. So at the same time, that the article on the previous slide was published. There was also a three-page colour article in the Sunday special, sort of special, helpfully telling us that we're not being erased, which really didn't make me feel any better personally, and I didn't feel comforted by that. And I think it's interesting that we get, again, um, these um, statements saying that the benefits of language inclus inclusivity, there's research to show this, whereas in fact, there is actually not really any research and nothing explaining the so-called benefits at all. Organisations over here have stopped referring to women. Here's just a small selection of um, examples. It is, of course, all about people. Not all periods have had periods of women. Not all women have periods, etc. People may have told you only babies do have, people who have babies can have an IUD, etc. And the same issue with cervical screening. Um, we, of course, recognise that many people, including, of course, a lot of women, I've had experience of healthcare that have been less than optimal. And we, of course, agree that this should be addressed and remedied. But I personally don't think that the answer to this is removing the language of women, mothers, and breastfeeding. I think we should aim to respect everyone, including the women who would prefer to be called women, pregnant women, and breastfeeding mothers. The Ministry of Health have changed their language without any obvious consultation that we're aware of. Um, it looks like they started off in March 2022 with trying to use what's called, of course, the additive approach. Then by about June 2022, in this long acting reversible contraception training principles and standards, they don't mention women at all, or interestingly, the vagina. They do talk about inserting a speculum, but don't actually mention where it goes to, to get to the cervix. There are 19 mentions of person and seven persons. And the trainee greets the person and appropriately identifies people by name. Then we had the standards for abortion counselling, which was in August 2022. Women are mentioned once, but then you couldn't really get away with that, not doing that, because it was in reference to CEDAW. So that's how that goes. So abortion counselling is intended to provide therapeutic support to people who are considering having or have had an abortion. And I think the change from women and people in March 2022 through to where we are now in August 2022 shows quite clearly 
what the expressed concerns have been with the additive approach, like guess which bit gets dropped quite quickly, in fact. This is a bit of an attempt to try and work out some numbers in terms of births. Um, so um, we've only got data available in Australia and looking at the number of births in Australia, in 2018, 22 births were reported in women who identified as men. So theoretically, even if the numbers have grown to 20, 29, say, in 2020, this is still a tiny fraction of the births in Australia. So if we translated the figures to here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, based on 60,000 births annually, that would equate to six births per year, which is, I think, interesting in terms of all the difference, all the changes we're making to language. So I've added this pamphlet here, which is about supporting transgender and non-binary parents. It's um, produced by PADA, which is the Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Aotearoa, a really great organisation. Um, I think it's essential that we do, as a health worker again, that we do have evidence-based, understandable and accessible health information out there for everyone that addresses their own health needs. So I am supportive of information availability, but this bit here, was particularly perplexing to me, and I think potentially misleading. This is comparing the increase in transgender and non-binary visibility to the incidence and visibility of people who were left-handed. It talks about how children in the early 20th century were discouraged from using their left hand due to religious beliefs, and of course they were punished. And then once the beliefs changed and they could use their right hand, or their, sorry, their left hand without punishment, the number of left-handed adults grew. I think that obviously stopping children using their left hand is not okay, but what could happen to children now can't be compared to that. Um, potentially irreversible damage, to quote Abigail Schreer. As a health worker, again, it's really important that we have clear communication, which is a lot of the problem with this losing the sex language. Um, understanding what the information says is paramount. It has to be understandable, it has to be effective, otherwise your message is completely compromised. So what's happening to our language in healthcare is a concern. It is respectful to address people individually by whatever they wish to call themselves, um, but there are ways of doing this which do not erase women and also make things understandable for people who've got English as a second language and a whole range of issues that are embedded in there. So a group of very well-respected um, researchers based in, in various places, a few in Australia, some in England, um, published this article in early 2022. And some of you will be very familiar with this article because it was quite a seminal article in terms of what it was saying. It was about effective communication about pregnancy, birth, lactation, breastfeeding, newborn care, and the importance of sex language. So Gribble et al actually highlighted the risks of desexing language when you describe female reproduction. And they recognise the lack of consideration of the ethics of these changes. And I do recommend getting a copy of this article if you haven't read it. It's free to download. And there's also some really good supplementary information to download too, which shows you different organisations, their, their approaches or not approaches to actually um, addressing this issue. These language changes on this slide, of course, will not be new to most of you, of course. But I think when you look at that slide, you see all the words that are being replaced with person, people, families, mother and mothers replaced with parent, et cetera, body parts, as we know, birthers, vagina owners, et cetera, and even non-males or non-men. Um, I think it's also, as it says there, notable to not see that um, when it comes to matters related to males, we don't really see this desexing language happening. So my area of work, as I said before, is actually in women's reproductive health and maternity. So these changes in terms of data and getting data that we understand in the future and also research um, are really of concern to me. And listening to women in New Zealand and overseas, they are unhappy with these changes, but often too intimidated to express their concerns and their voices, rights and wishes are disrespected and disregarded. So this image, and you can see it's me because I actually wore my red glasses tonight, so there would be no difficulty in identifying me. This image and message was created in 2019, funnily enough. It was posted first on Facebook in 2019 and seen by a lot of people. And it was a quote from a book chapter actually that I wrote about climate change and infant feeding. So um, it was in a book by, um, edited by Lorna Davis, Rhea Dallenbach and Mary Kensington about sustainability, migratory and birth. And so in my chapter, I also referenced Marion Nessel, um, who had 
written a chapter for a different book. And the reason I use this quote, which says it's important to restore breastfeeding relationships to the people to whom breastfeeding belongs, women, so they can breastfeed if they want to, when they want to, and where they want to, is because Marian Nestle, who wrote an, a chapter which is entitled um, How Neoliberalism Ruins Traditional Diets and Health. And I consider that breastfeeding is really a traditional diet in that sense, and it belongs to women. Um, and it was in a book called Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies and the Destruction of Mexico. So, so Marion was talking about tortilla, and she said that she uses the tortilla for a metaphor for change. And she said the key is to restore its relationship to the people to whom it historically belongs, so they can eat tortillas if, when and where they want to. So that's where this actual quote came from. And of course, it caused some negative feedback in 2022, unfortunately, and it incited none in 2019. And this was put on the page um, for World Breastfeeding Week. It was just reused, which is why it says on the bottom, the step up for breastfeeding message, which was the message for this year. And the comments underneath this particular um, image had to be turned off, um, yeah, for the obvious reasons. And I think, this next slide I've got I'm putting up is something that politicians should think about. And I know that this is coming through in lots of places like, you know, for Labour, what is a woman? And they're being politicians being asked these questions. So I think, you know, this was an old slide again for World Breastfeeding Week. And my friend Alison, this was her daughter, Olivia, with her granddaughter, um, Iris. And it says, this World Breastfeeding Week, we'd like politicians everywhere to remember the one simple act with which women have the power to change lives. And breastfeeding advocates refer to this activity as voting. This is just to celebrate the joy of books, just to relieve things. And I think it's really true. It's great to read a book or write something and then people don't put obnoxious comments on the last page, which is really good. And I think we're all used to social media now and um, some of the backlash that women are getting. So I just wanted to just very quickly say, um, we have an organization here, Inside Out, which is probably the closest thing we've got to mermaids, which you have in the UK. Um, Inside Out works with youth, finer schools and communities. Um, they have a range of things. They have um, working schools, they do resources, et cetera. And I think Katrina's gonna talk more about this further on. We also, of course, have now got Rainbow Storytime. So Drag Queen Storytime has arrived in New Zealand and is in our libraries. Um, for preschoolers and children. The Ministry of Health information, this is one of the most concerning bit because this page I don't think has been updated since 2020. And despite the Ministry of Health receiving numerous letters of concern about what this says, it still says that blockers are a safe and fully reversal medicine that may be used from early puberty, etc. So this is causing a little bit of a concern. I have added this slide. This is from the excellent Compensation Corporation, which is our New Zealand Crown entity, is responsible for administering our no-fault accidental injury compensation. So we're looking now at the moment at extending cover for maternal birth injuries. But I thought it was quite amusing to see this little bit at the bottom because it says it covers, it extends cover to parents injured during labour and birth. I think that as an ex-midwife, it didn't make me giggle a bit because I had visions of fathers fainting in the birth room and hurting themselves. And then they'd have to be covered as well, because that just shows again how ridiculous this language ends up being and how difficult it is to interpret. So the voices of people who'd like to discuss these issues are generally silenced. And this CATA, the Child and Adolescent Therapist Association, recently provided the most amazing day, a seminar. As soon as they started advertising the seminar, um, they got attacked. Stella O'Malley was one of the speakers, and they also had two lawyers speaking who were interpreting the law changes for concerned therapists who wonder how they're going to practice. So unfortunately, um, they had to come out and make statements about what it wasn't about because they were accused of all range of things really. And all they're really interested in is um, looking at mental health issues, looking at accurate information based on science and, and evidence, et cetera. So we got, a lot of um, things in the media, the New Zealand Association of Councillors immediately put something out there saying they were concerned about the conference because they thought it wasn't going to reflect best practices. They thought it was going to pathologize transgender people, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, none of this was true at all. And of course, they tried to disrupt the um, 
conference as well. So some good news really to end my part of the session. Um, we've at last got a measured important article suggesting that New Zealand needs to review their use of, of um, puberty blockers. This is in the New Zealand Listener um, that's just this week. So this is a really good, well-researched and thoughtful article about something we should be looking at. So I think that the, um, the opening sentences reflect the situation in New Zealand quite well, where Charlotte Paul, who wrote this, said she was writing this article because my colleagues pleading with me to do so. My younger colleagues in particular know they can't speak out because it could potentially damage their reputations. So that's the end of my little piece. And um, I'm going to hand over to Katrina now. And then when Katrina finishes, I'm going to show you a few more slides of the various organizations in New Zealand who are working in the same space as we are. So over to Katrina. Thanks, Carol. Hi, I'm Katrina Biggs, and I'm the co-spokeswoman for Speak Up for Women New Zealand. Thank you for having me here and the opportunity to tell you a bit about us in general and a little bit about the situation here in New Zealand with gender identity ideology. Now, first of all, may I show you our wonderful T-shirt? <laughs> if you can see that. Oh. This was co-designed by, uh, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. This was designed by the co-spokeswoman, Suzanne Levy. Okay, Speak Up for Women was formed in 2018 around someone's kitchen table in the manner of speaking to campaign against the sex self ID bill being sneaked through Parliament, just like it was in about every country where it's been passed into law. Speak Up for Women operates as a small leadership team with some amazing supporters, but we don't have a paid membership as such. There are also some incredible gender critical women here in New Zealand who work off their own bat on some issues and together on others. Needless to say, the level of hostility has been and still can be eye-watering. The Speak Up for Women leadership team and the supporters who wrote letters and spoke out against Sex Self ID are clearly terrible, bigoted women for not wanting men in women's spaces and sports, even those men who say they're women. Despite a High Court ruling in 2021 that Speak Up for Women could not rationally be described as a hate group, a mayoral candidate still alluded to our group being that very thing in a recent public po podcast. The bill did get put on hold the first time around, but got resurrected when the Labour government got back into power in 2020. And eventually it was passed into law in December 2021. Um, that's the bill that was passed into law. The law will actually be passed in about mid next year. Uh, during the campaign against it, we were told that a Department of Internal Affairs would conduct a statutory review of the sex self ID law five years after it was passed. But recently, um, but excuse me, but recent information has revealed that it will only be a review of the processes, not the impacts. That wasn't the impression we got when the review was mentioned. So now we need to go back and see what was actually said and in what context. Meantime, initial approaches to the Department of Internal Affairs to work with them to collect stories of the impacts of sex self ID have not exactly been received with a great idea response, so we will continue working on making further approaches there. Those aforementioned terrible bigoted women are very much our heroines. Their campaigning and raising public awareness about the sex self ID bill gave rise to a clause being added, which amounted to saying that a birth certificate wasn't necessarily the ultimate proof of a person's sex and that other factors could be taken into consideration. The other factors are not named, so this remains to be tested, although a beard and a male body complete with penis might possibly be considered other factors. Who knows? As I said, it remains to be tested. Speak Up Borman is currently working on providing some written clarity for service providers who appear to have been confused by our Human Rights Commission's advice about discrimination based on gender. Single sex spaces are still allowable by law, but the waters around this have become so muddied with the conflation of sex and gender and our public service policies, both written and that which has seeped into the narrative, that confusion reigns. Not to mention the aggression from gender identity ideologues and activists who pile on anyone who strays from how they say things should be. This frightens most service providers into submission. We've seen this in other countries too. After three years of intense campaigning and being on the receiving end of so much hostility from activists, local councillors and local body government, politicians and members of parliament, 
for the crime of not wanting to protect women's rights and safeties, the women who led this campaign were campaigned out and the reins were handed over to a new leadership team. We have broadened our focus from the single issue of sex self-ID and now advocate for the wider issue that sex does matter in some instances, and when it matters, it really matters. After a hiatus while the new leadership team was being established, Speak Up for Women is now working on building up public visibility again. We know we're succeeding because some people are getting very upset with us once more. Since those early days when women were caught napping because we thought our rights and safeties were secure and could only be built upon, not pulled down, we've pretty much followed in the footsteps of all the other countries which have been captured by gender identity ideology. The mainstream media here in New Zealand are captured right up to the hilt. However, some smaller but well, still well-known media have begun dipping their toes into presenting a side of this issue that's not all about following the ideologues and activists' playbook. Admittedly, it's been a bit like pulling teeth getting here, but there does seem to have been a small breakthrough, fingers crossed. The fact that careers and livelihoods have been on the line for those who didn't play by their ideologues and activists' playbook may have had a small bearing on this media silence, you think? The top brass within all our public service and government departments also appear to be captured, as well as many of the rank and file. Although there are some secret dissenters amongst them, once again, they mostly keep silent from the fear of risking their jobs and livelihoods. New Zealand's own Ministry for Women doesn't define what a woman is. The chief executive said that very thing just a few months ago. I don't know of any other ministry within our government that doesn't define what it exists for. Our Ministry for Women is fully trans women are women, but doesn't actually explain how it is that any man who says he's a woman is one. They can't seem to provide or point to any of their policies that explicitly state trans women are women, and neither can they provide anything that shows when or how the decision was made to incorporate men who genderfy as women under the umbrella of the Ministry for Women. Not only is our Ministry for Women captured, the National Council for Women here in New Zealand is too. And all the text on the home page of their website, they don't mention the word woman once, apart from in their title. We know that there are many good, work, uh, many good people working in our ministries and organisations, but gender identity ideology seems to have made inroads in ways that they're unable to combat, should they wish to. A little while ago, our Ministry of Education released refreshed relationships and sexuality education guidelines. These have some very good guidelines in them, but also have some disturbing guidelines which pay homage to gender identity ideology, even for very young children. This resulted in a group of women creating a website called Resist Gender Education to give alternative guidance for parents who are aghast at some of the ideas around gender identity ideology being pushed on to both primary and secondary school children. For example, the Ministry of Education are supporting guidelines from rainbow organisations such as Inside Out, who advise that any boy who says he's a girl should be allowed to use the girls' facilities, play on girls' sports teams at school and sleep with them when there is an away trip. There is no apparent consideration given to girls in this advice, it is totally a one-way street. And even though the Ministry of Education advises that all students' needs must be considered, it seems to support an organisation that ignores that advice. The exception is if the trip involves an overnight stay on a marae, a communal Māori complex, and then respect must be shown towards marae protocols if sleeping arrangements are separated by sex on the marae. One of the ongoing issues at the moment is the matter of the Christchurch City Council implementing a women's session at the new Linwood Pool, and then stating that it includes a trans woman and people who identify as being woman. Not only does it include them, but welcomes them. In other words, any man who genderfies as a woman is welcome, but boys over six years old aren't. This is astonishing when we dig down and discover how much the council bent over backwards to make a place where women felt safe and secure away from men. This included the installation of blinds that could be lowered over the pool's windows during the women's session and a warning that in the event of an emergency, it was possible that a woman may be attended to by a male paramedic. During the early stages of creating a women's session at Linwood Pool, the Christchurch City Council had discussed splitting the women's session in a way that trans that trans women and people who identify as being women 
would have a time slot where they didn't mix with women. In other words, there would be a time slot strictly for women only, and another time slot for women, trans women, and people who identify as being women. <coughs> Excuse me. This was, <coughs> this was what we asked for when engaging with the council after the pool was opened, and we found out that that ended up making the women's session a free-for-all for anyone who called themselves women. Upon further investigation, the council appeared to have changed their mind from their original stance after consulting with Qtopia, Christchurch's rainbow organisation. Despite the council's claims that they consulted widely about the women's session, we can't see evidence that the community was consulted on the particular point of including those men who self-ID as women. This is still an ongoing matter with the Christchurch City Council, and we still hope to resolve it. Thank you to any, everyone who is in with us, um, in with us in this. Now I'll hand back to Carol. So we're just going to finish really with a few slides which um, show you some of the organisations that are active over in Australia and New Zealand. There's a really good organisation, Save Women's Sports in Australia. Australasia. And I should say that um, we're talking too fast, obviously, for most of you to read most of the things that are on the slides, but of course you'll be able to see it, um, slow it down at some point. Um, and read it properly. This is Save Women's Sports again, the rest of their webpage, it's a really good website. We also have Women's Liberation Aotearoa, which is, we have Broadsheet, which is New Zealand's feminist magazine, which was active again. It's a great Facebook page, except they haven't posted anything since the 18th of August, so we're not quite sure what's happened to them at the moment. There's a Coalition for Biological Reality, Australia and New Zealand, it's a Facebook page. There's Lesbian Action for Visibility and Aotearoa, which is LAVA. Um, we've also got, of course, now LGB Alliance in New Zealand, which has just recently um, set up here, which is really great. There's also a website called Fully Informed that documents the case against puberty blockers and highlights alternatives. Uh, Manawahini Koro, which is a really good um, page with quite a few videos, which are really of interest. Maori woman uh, for Maori woman, yeah. Arguments with friends, um, Substack, which is a Substack. The Ministry has fallen, which is also a Substack, and this is about the Ministry for Education. And also, no conflict. They said, is that a Substack too? No, that's no, a website that collects a, stories. Oh, that's a website that collects stories. Yeah. So um, there's a bit that they want to that invites you to sort of send stories in, and that's the end of the organizations and the end of our session so thank you very much for having us it's been a great pleasure and a privilege thank to you. join in thank you